again, church. I want you to go and get out your bulletin that you received on the way in. I just want to direct your attention just to a couple of things just to pay attention to. The first one is that all across our campuses, we're having a men's rally coming up on August 13th. So if you are a man, raise your hand up. If you're a man, raise your hand up. I just want to make sure people know that. Um, this would be a really great event for you. And again, from every campus, and also a great event, just maybe invite, invite another uh, male friend too, as well, just to have some um, fellowship and get to know one another. And they're gonna have some games and competition. It's gonna be really, really good. And I wanna challenge you as well, if you have not found a place to serve yet, man, Coastal Kids is such a great place to serve. If you wanna hear just some of the craziest thoughts that are flowing through people's minds, like serve in kids' ministry. But if you also just want to be a part of one of the most rewarding ministries in the church, it is our kids' ministry. And God's been doing some great things over there. We've seen just a, a great increase in attendance over there. So we are looking for more people to help not just babysit. We don't babysit over there, okay? You're literally serving the next generation when you're serving kids' ministry, helping to disciple and mentor and share the gospel with them um, as we welcome them into the church. So if you haven't had a, found a place to serve yet, there's a great place to serve. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. How many of you have heard these verses before? Raise your hand up. You've heard these verses before? Look, if you, are, if you are brand new to the Bible, maybe brand new to church, or maybe if you haven't heard these verses before, whether you have a digital or analog Bible, I want you to turn to that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and I want you to circle those verses or highlight those verses. Because these are the main verses that we typically point to or look to, to tell people like that the Bible isn't just another book, that this is the word of God. We are still in our series in James, but I just wanted to show you something that I saw for the very first time as I was looking over this passage again the other day. Look, when Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God, this is a clear reminder that God guided and controlled the process of his word being written, even though it was written by men. The people that he used to write the Bible, God breathed this out and he controlled the process. He managed the process as the Bible was being written. So it was guided by the Holy Spirit, which means that the Bible can be trusted. And it means what we're reading and what we're going to be reading today is truth. And the next few phrases are the ones that I wanted to focus on before we get to James chapter 5. You're going to see the connection here in just a moment. But Paul, who writes this in 2 Timothy, was writing to a church. 
And he was warning them that the, that the very deception they were seeing from the world was going to infiltrate the church. And this would actually grow from bad to worse. So Paul's saying, look, even with all of that disinformation and deception that was going to try to infiltrate the church, he says, look to the scriptures because they are breathed out by God. Paul who writes this, look, he wants them to, to not miss this and see how important it is that God himself was controlling the process as the Bible was being written. So all of that to say that the scriptures are indeed profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. And what I saw a couple of weeks ago is that even in this, look, there is a progression of growth that should happen as we take in the word of God. Look, Paul says it begins with teaching. Now, now think of teaching as the standard. That's what we need to look to, what we need to see. Think of this as it being the standard. God's word, his teaching, his doctrine, it is the standard. Look, it is the plumb line. It is the true north. It is the standard for everything. It is the foundation, the anchor, the center. God's word, his doctrine is the filter for all other filters. It's the teacher that should teach everything else in our lives. Look, Paul says that this is God-breathed. This is the word of God. We said this a few weeks ago that with all of this information, this vast amount of information that we have and disinformation that's often come, coming at us, we need to look to one with no variation to filter all this other information. You need a filter that will filter everything else. You need a standard that you hold every other standard to. And the teacher that teaches everything else, it is the word of God. Paul says, look, this teaching, this is the standard. And then he goes on to say, look, this word is also good for reproof. Now think of reproof as that, that's, that's how we compare ourselves to the standard. This is how we know and follow what the Spirit is trying to do in us and what he's trying to do around us. This is where we see, look, where God is and where we need to be. This is how we see just how holy God is and how sinful we are. When we're thinking about reproof, this is where we see just how good and how just God is and just how much we still need to grow. Teaching is the standard. Reproof is how we compare to the standard. It's where we evaluate where we are and where we need to be. Now, he also goes on to say that this word, this word breathed out by God is also good for correction. Now, think of correction as how we get closer to the standard. This is where, just like the writer of Hebrews says, this is where we need to realize that there's still some things that we need to throw off because they've been tangling us up, and we need to run with endurance the race that has been set before us. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Look, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Did you know that if you are a follower of Jesus that you have been saved, you're being saved, and that you will be saved? 
Right now, if you have already trusted Jesus, look, he has saved you from the penalty of sin, which means that the wages of sin is no longer earning you death because you have received the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ. But right now, God is also redeeming you from the power of sin. In fact, a theological term we like to use is the word sanctification, that right now God is sanctifying you which means he's continually making you more and more into who it is that he created you to be in him. I know this is opposite of what the world teaches right now, but the more you actually let God correct you, the more you let the Holy Spirit correct you, the more you, you actually become. The more you let God correct you and do his work in you, you, you literally become more you-ier, okay? You become more the you that you were actually created to be. In fact, to find yourself, you need to look to the founder and perfecter of faith. You need to look to Jesus Christ. Church, I asked you this question a lot, but I want to ask you again. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? This is why the gospel is so good. Because this word that's been breathed out by God, look, it tells us that, yes, we, we have this God who created us and, yes, who loves us and who even will that you would be here today. But this word that is breathed out by God, it also tells us that sin is, has entered the world and we're all born with this problem called sin. In fact, sin separates us from God. Sin causes a brokenness that we see in us and also around us. And this word that is breathed out by God, look, it tells us if we don't do anything about this sin problem, if there isn't a price to pay for this penalty of sin, we're going to spend this eternity from God, but we're also going to live and die without hope. But the good news is this word that is breathed out by God, it tells us that while we were still sinners, this Jesus who is God died for us. He died on the cross, taking on the wrath and the judgment that was due to us because of this penalty of the sin. He paid the price for our sin on the cross when he died. But this good news is that he also bodily rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering the grave, showing us the way, the truth, and the life, how to really live this life authentically and to the full. This word that is breathed out by God tells us that if we repent of our sin, believe in Jesus, and receive him as Lord, that everything in our lives will change now and for eternity. If you have not yet trusted Christ as Lord and leader of your life, I would challenge you to not let sin win. Look, he loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And today is the day to trust him and to follow him. But see, this correction that Paul talks about for the person who does have a relationship with Jesus, this is where we see, look, maybe, maybe I'm not quite yet where I want to be. Maybe I'm not even quite yet, yet where God wants me to be. But by his grace, as he continues to correct me, I'm not where I used to be. And you can see the progress that God has been making in your life. As you let him correct you, we get closer to his standard. We get closer to what we were actually created to be. And then Paul also says this word is for training. Now now think of training as we let God's word work a process in us that it trains us to now continually follow what the standard is. 
This is when we make obedience to God's word the standard in our lives. So if anyone else, if even their mama says that something different from God's word, like we follow and obey what God says, even if everyone else says something different, we make continually following God's word our standard. I know some of you look at me and say, you know what, Andrew, I bet you that you're an athlete, okay? Not necessary to laugh. I know many of you may say, you know what, maybe, maybe, maybe not now. Okay, maybe in middle school or high school you were, uh, played football. Maybe you played tennis really well. Uh, maybe it was baseball. Uh, maybe it was basketball. Maybe you did some type of sport. You look really athletic. Let me just say it is not true. Um, I was more of what you would call a mathlete in school. In fact, when I was in middle school, I was in the engineering club. Uh, when I was in high school, I was in the medical club. In fact, I'm the opposite of what you would call an athlete. But here's one thing I do know about athletes. Those who are committed, continual training is the standard. They want to reach that peak performance to reach the ideal, continuing to improve. In fact, we said this a couple of weeks ago that when it comes to practice, we don't need to think practice makes perfect. We need to think practice makes progress. And Paul says, look to God's word that teaches, reproves, corrects, and now it continually trains us that we may be, may be equipped for every single thing that comes across our way. It goes back to what we've been talking about for this whole James series and living authentically, looking at the lies we might be believing or the lies we may even be, believing, be living right now. But then looking at the truth from God's word and then making the choice to continue to continually follow his standard no matter what anyone else is doing around us. God has a standard. In fact, I want you to look to the person sitting next to you right now. I want you to look him in the eye. I want you to say, you know what? I love you. Go ahead and tell him that, okay? You've never met him before. Say, I love you. But tell him, you know what? You are not the standard. You're not the standard. But God does have a standard, and his standard is the teaching from his word. And it is when we follow this standard, he continues to reproof us, to correct us, and to train us so that we may be fully equipped for whatever it is that happens to us in this life. I say all of that, church, because today as we look through this passage in James, we know that God wants to use his word to bring glory to Christ and to work his good in us. All of that to say that today that we're going to be looking at one of the biggest lies that Christians can believe. And one of the biggest misconceptions about the people of God in the church. Today we're going to be talking about money and possessions. Now, before you walk out, okay, before you click off online, we've already taken up our offering Many of you give digitally online, which is fantastic. And we're not going to bolt the doors or anything like that and force you to give before you walk out of here. I know some people have said that. That's what churches do. We're not going to do any of that. But what we are going to do in just a minute, we're going to post up all of your online bank statements. And we're going to show who is not giving in the church. Okay, just kidding. Okay, okay guys, calm down. All right, calm down. Look, if you're new to church, we're not going to do any of that. We don't have the ability to do that. But what you're going to see today in James chapter 5, James pushes hard, and I mean hard, 
against one of the areas that people who are even following Jesus will not let God reproof them in, correct them in, or train them in. But could it be in this area of money and possessions that Satan still wants to steal, kill, and destroy? But could it also be that in this area of money and possessions that Jesus Christ wants to train you, correct you, and reproof you so that you may be thoroughly equipped for every good thing? Could it be that in this area of money and possessions that the Holy Spirit actually wants to set you free? Today we're going to look at one of the lies that we can believe even after we follow Jesus. Man, James leads us to the truth. He leads us to this truth and this choice that will produce freedom in us, even in this area of money and possessions. James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted your garments and they are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. But behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which which kept, you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Before we continue on, let's just take a moment and pray one more time. Father God, um, as we look at your word today, again, Lord, we know that it is good. It is breathed out by God. God, we know that your word is profitable. It is good for teaching, Lord, for reproofing, for correcting, and for training. So that all of us may be thoroughly equipped so that we may complete the good work that you began in us. So whatever it is that comes across our way, God, we can actually live in the victory that comes under Christ. And God, I pray today that as we look at what you say about money and possessions, God, I pray if this has become even an idol in our lives or a sneaky idol, God, would you help us to see the truth? God, would you help us to see what the truth is? And Lord, help us to make the choice to walk in freedom in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the lie that we can often believe when it comes to money and possessions. Are you ready for it? The lie that we can often believe is that I'm not materialistic and money is not my God. We can often believe that, you know what, I don't struggle with having a bunch of stuff. I don't struggle with making money this idol in my life. That is not me. In fact, it's easy for many of us to immediately push back on this and say, James is not talking about me when he's talking about rich people who are hoarding all of these things and focusing on their money and possessions. He's obviously not talking about me. In fact, you know what? I'm not even rich. 
even though I live in America, if you live in America alone, you live in the top 3% of the wealthiest people in the entire world. You say, I'm not rich at all. In fact, he's probably, he's not talking to me at all. I follow Jesus. I trust Jesus. He's the one who sits on the throne of my life. He's not talking to me. But don't forget, James is actually addressing people who are already followers of Jesus. We don't know how big this problem was in his church, but it was so much so that he felt like he needed to lean into it and address it. Now, how many would say that you know somebody who's materialistic? Raise your hand up, raise your hand, you know somebody who's materialistic, and they're sitting next to you, point to them. Again, don't do that, okay? Don't, don't actually do that. But I think all of us say we know somebody who they are so focused on their possessions and their wealth or their money, and we know someone else who's materialistic. Now, don't raise your hand on this, but, raise, but think about this. Are you materialistic? You know, I've been in full-time ministry now for almost 16 years. And during that time, um, I, I've had people, again, they don't, they don't come like to confess to me because I'm not a, I don't forgive sins or absolve people of their sins or anything like that. But people will come if they're wrestling with a sin or struggling with something in their life and, and they'll come and say, will you help me with this or pray about this for me? And I've had people who come where they're wrestling with, with sexual immorality. Uh, they're wrestling with lustful thoughts or actions. They're wrestling with fear and anxiety and worry and all these other things in their life. Out of the 16 years that I've been trying to help people and lead them in that, I cannot tell you one person who has come to me and say, you know what, I just wrestle with buying too many things for myself. I've never had somebody who's come to me and say, you know what, every time I see what somebody else has and it's better than what I have, I start thinking I need that thing. I've never had someone confess that I spend way too much money on myself. I just have too many possessions. I've never had someone say, look, we are deeply in debt right now because all I've ever wanted is just more and more things. I've never had someone say that I'm so struggling right now because I really, Andrew, what I really just keep wanting and I can never be content what I really want is just a little more. It was John D. Rockefeller who became the nation's very first billionaire in the 1900s. Could you imagine being a billionaire in around the year 1897? I mean, I wouldn't mind being a billionaire right now, but back then, I mean, this was a lot of money. In fact, it's, it's estimated that his net worth if he, was a, if he was working today, that his net worth would actually be $339 billion. He was very, very wealthy. He had lots and lots of possessions. And John D. Rockefeller was interviewed by a reporter, and he was so famously asked. The reporter asked him, how much is too much? And do you remember what John D. Rockefeller replied when he said, how much is too much? Do anyone know what he said? He said, just a little more. Church, do you always want just a little more? Jesus actually talked more about materialism and greed than he did about sexual immorality. Yet we seem to think that none of us are guilty of it. 
In fact, I wanted to take just a few moments. I wanted to go with you like through some other passages of scripture that Jesus talks about these things. And I wanted to give you some thoughts to see if maybe you, you are, maybe I am wrestling just a little bit with materialism or struggling with greed. Here's the first one. Now, all these are going to come up on the screen. So if you can't write them down, I want you to take a picture. But here's the first one. The thought of losing or giving your possessions grieves you. In Luke chapter 18, verse 18, it says, look, a ruler asked Jesus. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And Jesus said, look, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And this ruler said, look, he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Money was his idol. Notice that Jesus said, look, uh, look, do not murder. There's rich young rulers like, check. Do not commit adultery, check. I'm good in those things. Or if I have been doing those things, I'm confessing those things. Uh, do, not, do not lie, check. Honor your father and mother, check. I'm good with all those things, Jesus. But you notice Jesus actually goes off of the top of the Ten Commandments and the very last one was do not have any other gods before me and don't you covet what your neighbor has. But those things, for him to give those things up, it grieved him. And see, his money and possessions, they were an idol in this rich young ruler's life. It brought security for him. He had hope and trust in them. But Jesus said this type of hope, it was lacking. The thought of losing this little G God in his life grieved him. Author and theologian Tim Keller, he says it this way about people who follow idols and trust in idols. He said people who do this with idols, they love them, they trust them. They obey them. And he says, trusters of money feel they have control of their lives and are safe and secure because of their wealth. So the thought of losing your money and your possessions grieve you. Does it make you feel insecure? The second thought that maybe we might be wrestling with materialism or wrestling with money, or this love for money, is that the thought of getting wealth and possessions consumes you. If the thought of losing those things grieves you, maybe the thought of getting more and more actually consumes you. Again, listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. It says, Jesus told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And this man said to himself, he said, look, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'm going to build me some bigger barns, some larger barns. And there I will store all my grains and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, the only way that his soul was going to be satisfied was to get a little bit more. 
to get more and more stuff, more and more possessions, more and more wealth. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus describes someone here who is consumed with materialism. Dr. Tony Evans, he says this about materialism. He says, materialism is when the physical and the financial take precedence over the spiritual and the eternal. You know, I really appreciated just a couple of weeks ago where Pastor Brian brought the message. And I don't know if you guys remember, he had that little pedestal up here and that little eye. And he was saying, you know, only God can sit on that pedestal, not you. You don't sit on that for your life. I really enjoyed your message a couple of weeks ago. But I also really appreciated when he told the story about how much he really wanted to get one of those brand new Ford Broncos. Uh, but instead, he ended up getting a used Dodge Avenger for a dollar instead. I really connected with that because church, I drive a 2011 Nissan Murano with 190,000 miles. Every single time that car gets a little shake in it, every time it hesitates to start a little bit, my first thought goes to, it is time to get a new car. I'll download the Auto Trader app. I'll download the cars.com app. I'll start looking on Facebook Marketplace, and I'll start working on my wife saying, look, it is time for us to get a new car. <laughs> she doesn't know I'm doing this, but I start telling her, look, it's time. Okay, look, we, we need to get a new car. Look, I start looking at how, how much of a car loan we can afford. Um, I start looking out in the church parking lot. Saying, I like that car they're driving. I like that car they're driving. I'm praying that they give me that car or sell it to me. I start shopping in the church parking lot because I get consumed with replacing our car. And I really do start trying to convince my wife, look, we can afford our car payment. Look, there's a couple kids that we don't know if they even want to go to college. We can put all of that on hold because we need to get a new, you know what, it's going to save us money in gas. All these new cars, they're more fuel efficient. This is what we need. Church, I know, and we cannot afford a car payment. We got four kids at home to feed. I know we can't afford a car payment. I know that we shouldn't go into a massive amount of debt that's actually going to end up hurting our margin, maybe even hurting our marriage, like causing fights between us. I know that we should not do that. But yet the thought of replacing this car and getting a little bit more consumes me. But why is that? Why do I think that way? Church, it's, it's because that sometimes I still attach my value to my stuff. It's because that this sin in me just wants a little bit more, even though what I have is enough. See, we can believe the lie that we don't love money and things, and we can believe this lie that sometimes we aren't just trying to build bigger barns or just get more and more possessions. The third thought I think we need to think about and ask ourselves to see if we're wrestling with materialism is the thought of giving to someone else, especially the poor, a bother to you? Is this thought of being generous, especially to the poor or giving to someone else, is it a bother or a trouble? Is it a troubling thought to you? 
I don't know if you remember this, but a few weeks ago, we were in James chapter 2, verse 15. And look, James says, he says, look, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, look, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And James is saying, look, if you actually have the, the money, the possessions to help somebody in need, he's saying, look, you should do it rather than trying to hold on to more just for yourself. And then where we are today in James chapter 5, verse 4, he says, look, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, for those of you who are in the room today, if you are uh, maybe a business owner or manager at work, what James is talking about right here are people that actually withhold money from, from people when that money is due to them. And see, we as followers of Jesus, we don't hold back just so that we could have more. We honor the people when they do the work and we don't cheat them of it. And for those of you who have a business, like this is a reminder that you need to operate with integrity and first honor Christ as you pay those who work for you. Don't cheat them so you can have just a little bit more. And for the rest of us, man, James, I think he, uh, James is, is talking about, look, when it comes to when we pay somebody to do something, look, we don't cheat them of it. Or there's something that we're responsible for, we don't cheat them of it. In fact, one commentator noted that this could actually be pointing to those who uh, pay workers inadequate wages, uh, people who might cheat on their taxes, falsifying weights or measurements, bribing inspectors or officials, false advertising, or even making up numbers on reports. Look, the things that we are responsible for as followers of Jesus, look, we don't cheat the system Again, so that we can look better or so we can have just a little bit more. We operate with integrity in every single area. And to that list that that commentator had, I want to add just one more thing. Can I say something about restaurants? Sometimes I've heard that sometimes the followers of Jesus are the worst at leaving tips. As wait staff, waiters, and waitresses serve us at restaurants, I've even heard that sometimes the followers of Jesus will leave a thing with the receipt that looks like money, but it's actually a gospel track, and you leave no tip. I really do think, like, if you go to a, a restaurant and someone serves you and waits on you, and you leave little or no tip, or even leave, like, an invite to church or a gospel track, James is talking about you. In fact, I want to challenge you, church, and I don't have like a, a biblical number for this, but I want to challenge you that when you go to a sit-down restaurant, when someone serves you, that you leave a tip of at least 20%. Like that's your minimum, that's your standard, and when the service is good, you go up from there. But you leave, the, you leave that 20% minimum. And yes, you do pray for the waiter or waitress. Yes, you do invite them to church, but you also tip well when you're there. Again, we honor people. We don't cheat them. We set the standard as followers of Jesus. So here's the signs of wrestling with materials. Can we put, all, put them all back up there? Can you put them all back up there, all three of those? The signs of wrestling with materialism. 
don't just breeze past this list, okay? I want to challenge you that at some point today, just take time and say, God, are, 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 are my possessions, God, if the thought of losing them, are, is it, does it grieve me? God, am I being consumed with the thought of just getting more and more wealth? Does it consume me? Am I not being rich to you, but I'm, I'm, being, I'm thinking about just getting more possessions for myself? Or the thought of generosity, the thought of giving to someone else? Man, does it, does it bother you? And if the Holy Spirit reveals to you that any of these things are a yes, man, I would just challenge you to take a moment and to repent. Because this is a sneaky idol. It is a sneaky sin that can build up in our lives. And James was talking to the church, but we cannot let money or materialism or greed become God. Because there's only one God that we should serve. So that's the lie. But what's the truth? The truth is love for riches is condemning, but love for Christ is concentrating. I mean, it's consecrating. Love for riches is condemning, but love for Christ is consecrating. Listen to what James says here again in verse 1 and 5 of chapter 5. He says, come now, you rich. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. He says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Look, James is saying, look, a consuming love for money and possessions, look, it does bring condemnation on us. But James is not talking about being rich, being bad, okay? One of the misconceptions in the church is that we either hate rich people or God doesn't want you to be rich. That is not true. What he's saying that is that a love for money, a love for money actually condemns us and it's leading your heart further and further away from God. It's kind of like what he goes on to say in verses 2 through 3 where he says, look, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. He says, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. He says, you laid up treasure in the last days. You know, fire is often a representation of God's judgment. And for those who would hold money and possessions and wealth as their main idol and their priority, look, they are, they are condemning themselves. They are pouring judgment on themselves. But love for money and possessions, it does hurt workers like we were just talking about in verse 4, but ultimately it hurts you. But again, James is not saying, look, you can't be rich, but he's saying don't love those money and possessions. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, where he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not having money, not being wealthy, but when you love it, it's the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, Jesus says, Look, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. And James was actually telling this church, look, this is what you're doing. Your gold is corroding, your clothes are corroding, you're hoarding these things for your own, your own possession, for your own self-worth. You're hoarding all these things, but really you need to lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And a voice that we often point, or a verse we often point to here at this church is Matthew 6, it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. 
You know, last week, Pastor Sean talked about how the gospel, um, when it comes right down to, look, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Church, that is what consecration looks like. Consecration really is just another word to say, God, I want everything in my life, everything I have to be dedicated to you, used by you, because it all comes from you. This is an area God needs to keep reproofing us in, correcting us in, and even training us in. Church, there's this sneaky lie that we can believe that we don't wrestle with greed or materialism or just love for money, even though it can become an idol in our lives. But the truth is this love for money is condemning. It hurts us and hurts those around us. But prioritizing loving Christ, seeking first his kingdom in everything, it is consecrating. So what's the choice? The choice is that we would worship God and steward what he gives you. We would worship God and steward what he gives us. Now, all this time as we've been going through James, he keeps pointing back to how Jesus needs to be the priority. Worship of God needs to be the priority. Like back in James chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, look, Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord of glory. And so many times he said, look, if you're looking for wisdom, again, the filter that filters everything else, you need to look to God. We need to look to him for that wisdom that is from above. So first and foremost, in everything, we need to look to the Lord. We need to worship him. Look, we don't worship money and possessions. We worship the one. So we make the choice always to worship God, but we also need to steward what it is that he gives us. If you've never heard that term before, here's a good definition I want you to write down. Stewardship refers to a household manager or steward, someone who manages the affairs of a master's house and cares for its occupants. That's what we're called to do, church. We're called to worship the Lord of glory because we realize that every good and perfect gift comes from him and everything we have is from the Lord. So we manage those things that he gives us for his honor and for his glory, but also to help others and also to help ourselves. That is being a good steward. So I wanted to close today with four ways that you can be a good steward, okay? And the first way is that, look, you need to seek God first in everything. You seek God first in everything. Look, all of it is a gift from God. Every day we have, every breath we take, every single dime we receive, it is a gift from God. I think King David had the right perspective when, he, when his term as a king was getting ready to come to an end. When his life was getting ready to come to an end and he was sending up his son Solomon to build the temple and he was gathering all the supplies for the temple. Listen to what King David says in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. He says, look, yours, O Lord, is the greatness. Again, he's worshiping the Lord. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, God, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people? That we should be able to thus to offer willingly. 
for all things come from you and you and your and you own excuse me and of your own have you given you have we, have we given you O lord our god all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own See, David had the right perspective that knowing everything is from God, even the strength that he had remaining, everything was from him. So we seek God in everything because we see that everything we have is from God. Second way to be a good steward is that you set a plan for your finances. You need to set a plan for your finances. It was Benjamin Franklin who first said, look, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And I would even add to that, look, if you fail to follow God's plan, you are planning to fail. And right now, if you don't have a plan with your finances, I just want to challenge you just to follow this simple plan. I call it the 10-10-80 plan. And that's where you give 10%, you save 10%, and you live on 80%. So you give 10% of whatever money you get in, whatever resources you get in. And then you save 10% for a rainy day so that every time something breaks, you don't have to swipe a credit card and go into more debts. And then you live off of the other 80%. But I also want to share with you, guys, I know this a lot today, but I want to share with you a couple of resources just to help you grow in this area. There's three books I would recommend that you pick up or read in this season. Um, there's three that will come up here on this slide. I want you to take a picture of it right here. If you want just a really good quick start to get the right perspective on managing your finances so you can really grow in this area, the Generosity, Generosity Ladder is a simple book. It's about 80 pages. But again, it's looking at God's plan for finances, biblical wisdom to look at as well, really short read to help you get in the right mindset, right perspective. Um, and then The Counterfeit Gods by Tim, Tim Keller. This book is a very solid theological book that, again, helps us understand just how much money can be, begin to possess us or even become an idol in our lives. And then The Total Money Maker by this guy named Dave Ramsey. If you want probably the, the full package of um, how to really manage your finances well, again, based on godly biblical principles on how to not be conquered by your debt, on how to be debt-free, plan for your future, really live generously, and manage all of your finances well. I highly recommend that you do all three of these books, but at least pick with one. If you feel like right now, like your possessions are either possessing you, or if you feel like right now you're really struggling in this area. And then quick note to people who are single in the room. Now is the time to get the right perspective when it comes to your finances. Now is the time to follow God's plan when it comes to your finances. And then for married people in the room, for married people in the room, you need to be on the same page when it comes to your finances. And sometimes we're following a system or a plan that is from a broken place. It came from broken people. It came from a broken family member, a broken system out in the world. But we need to instead follow what God has said. And husbands and wives, you want to know what the number one or number two cause for divorce is amongst people, depending on what survey you look at. It's fights over money. God does not want your marriage destroyed because of your finances. 
He wants you to even to experience victory in this area. Not to let your finances possess you, but instead for you to surrender even in this area to God and let him train you. So set a plan for your finances. And then you also need to sow into the kingdom. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? He says, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have I robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and, that there, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You know, Mosaic law actually required the Israelites to give 10% of their livestock and produce to the Lord, and they could even fulfill the requirement by giving money as well. And the tithes, in addition to numerous offerings, they were, they were supposed to give. In fact, some scholars have kind of added up all the stuff that the Israelites would give back to the Lord. And a lot of times it was closer to 20% of what they actually gave. And you say, you know what, Angel, we're not under law anymore. Uh, we are under grace. Christ came to fulfill the law. And yes, I agree. But under law, they did 10% back to the Lord. That almost seems like it should be a minimum for the follower of Jesus. In fact, it was theologian and pastor John Piper who says, look, we're under a greater covenant, so it should equal greater giving. And you say to me, you know what, why well, give my time to the church? Time is money, pastor. And we all, we actually see a distinction in Acts chapter 2 that there is this serving and there is also this giving. In fact, around here we often say, look, give your time, your talent, and your treasure. Plus, God has always used the people of God to give to the mission of God, to fund and fuel and build the kingdom of God. Church, I really do hope that if this is your church, that you believe in the mission. I really do believe that the local church is indeed the hope of the world. And it's not just because I work for one. I really do believe that the church brings the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. And it helps share the truth of Christ with people who are desperately needed. There's no other organization that is going to have more eternal impact than the church. Church, I hope that this is your church that you will sow into the kingdom. And you'll help further what Coastal is doing as we continue to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to what God has said and pouring out a blessing, we've seen it time and time Again, Back in 2011, a friend of mine was working for a church called Thomas Road Baptist Church based out of Lynchburg, Virginia. And during that time, uh, they had planted a campus in Danville, Virginia. And then that friend of mine who worked for that church gave me a call and said they were looking for an associate pastor to come alongside this church so that it could continue to grow and spread the gospel. During this time, Danville was one of the most impoverished areas in the entire state of Virginia. In fact, I think the unemployment rate was right around 14 or 15%. Um, 
Danville was a time, uh, an area that was still very, very racially segregated. In fact, the racial tension there was almost palpable when you would go. And, and we looked at this area, and as we prayed, we believed that God was calling us to Danville, Virginia. So we put our home up for sale in Ohio where we were living, and we headed down to Danville while the home was still on the market. What we didn't know is that when we were going down there, this was one of the worst recession times in America. It was that near the end of the housing crisis. So our house back in Ohio, it didn't sit on the market for weeks. It sat on the market for months. And as we were trying to pay rent in Danville, Virginia, still pay our mortgage in Ohio, and as we were trying to live in Danville, we were trying to do everything possible. We started to sell our possessions that we had. We went down to a bare bones budget. I mean, we didn't have any streaming services. We had an antenna during that time. We were trying to do everything to make it work. And as we had already exhausted our savings, pretty much sold everything that we could sell, on a pastor salary, single income household, we got one more bill in the mail that broke the proverbial camel's back. It was a bill for $700. And you may say, you know what, $700, that's nothing for me. In fact, my Jordans cost more than $700. Like for us, it might as well have been $700,000 because we had no idea where the money was gonna come from. We even thought, do we need to move back to Ohio? Did God really call us here to spread the gospel? Do we need to go back to Ohio? Do we, what, what are we going to do to make this work? In fact, we even thought, you know what, maybe right now in this season, we need to stop giving and we need to stop tithing. I remember my wife and I, as we were thinking about that, it's like that verse in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10 came back to our minds. Bring that verse back up, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Look again what it says. So God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And we prayed and we said, God, we're not going to stop giving. We're not going to stop tithing. But God, right now, we have a need. And you said, if we honor you in this, God, you're going to fulfill that need. In fact, we even put some of that King James sauce on it and said, God, you're going to give us so much that we will not be able to contain it. God, you're going to pour out a blessing that we will not be able to contain. Uh, a couple of days later, my former boss, my old pastor that was at the church in Ohio, he gave me a call. And we had donated some items that we couldn't take to Danville to the church just so it can bless other families, help some of the ministries that they supported. And we donated some items before we left Ohio to move down to Danville. And my former boss, my former pastor, he said to me, he said, he said, look, I know you guys donated those items, but I believe the Lord wants me to give you something for those items. And I said, you know what, we, we weren't expecting anything. Like, we, it really was just a donation. We don't want anything, even though I'm saying, God, anything you can give right now, we need. I said, we don't really need anything. I did not tell him how much we were in need of in that moment. So a few weeks later, the check arrived in the mail. You want to know how much that check was for? It was for $700. In that moment, and God reminded us, when we choose to worship him, to seek him first, 
in everything. When we choose to steward what he's given us. Man, this is such a better plan to follow. It's such a better plan to follow that supersedes anything that greed or materialism or a love for money can ever produce. But God also said, no matter what, look, he is going to take care of his managers. And as our worship team goes in and makes their way back up to the stage, I have one more I wanted to share with you. And I know this is not good English, but the last way to be a good steward is to see that this ain't it. Jesus said, look, we need to remember this world is not our home. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. When we set our plan according to God's plan, it is a reminder that all that we have is from him. And no matter what, look, this world is still not our home. But we can invest in something that is eternal, that will last forever. Let me pray for you guys. Father God, I want to thank you, Lord, just for how much you love us. Lord, to think that you still teach us, Lord, your word. And Lord, that is the standard, God. And I pray that we will remember that and not forget that, that your word is the standard. Even if everyone else and their mom says something different, God, would you teach us? God, would you reproof us and show us how we compare to the standard? But God, would you correct us to live according to your standard? And train us to make that, God, what we do all the time. To obey you, to trust you, to follow you. And God, whatever it is, Lord, you want to give us, everything is from you. God, I pray that we will worship you and seek you first in everything. Because we know that, God, you have provided everything. Would help us to trust you with everything. But I pray, God, you help us to set the right plan that follows you the right plan that honors you, God, the right plan that helps build your kingdom, Lord, because this is a great eternal value. God, we love you, Lord. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.